This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska, and supporting listeners like you. Go to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click Donate, or visit Patreon.com backslash TwoHeadedNerd to become a supporter today. Ha-cha! Broadcasting from the ziggurat at Omaha, deep below the metro area, folks, it is our pleasure to welcome you nerds to episode 564 of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast. Nerds, I'm going to get real with you. My name is Matt Baum. Whoa. And I'm the Internet's Joe Patrick. This week, the THN Review Spotlight shines on Decorum, Jonathan Hickman's new Not an X title at Image, and the new X title for Kid Cable at Marvel. Then it's time for comics and cocktails while we review eight more of this Wednesday's new comics during the ludicrous speed round. After that, it's up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum where we're going to tell you all about our must-read comic picks for next week. And finally, the official THN historian Jason Sachs checks in to talk about who the hell is the Red Guardian because nobody wanted to defend Kid Cable. It's not... It doesn't need defending. It's not One More Day or the Clone Saga. I just want to hear who likes it. That's all. I think it's fine. I like Kid Cable. (laughs) But before we kick this self-quarantine into high gear, how about some editorial madness while we discuss this week's nerd news? By the way, self-quarantine, that means naked, right? If you're doing it right. It means you're naked. Yeah, I mean, that's how I do it. (laughs) Not wearing any dirty clothes. No, no, that's the virus sticks to that shit. Writer Mariko Tamaki and artist Mikkel Janin are taking over DC's Wonder Woman title beginning with June 10th, number 759. That's a weird number, right? I mean, you know. Figure, figure the Figure the last story arc started with 751. All eight right. parts. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This was first reported by Polygon.com. Uh, Tamaki and Janin take over from Steve Orlando and a rotating lineup of artists. I did not know that it wasn't like a regular creative team of Wonder Woman this whole time. Well, there's been like a different artist for each storyline kind of rotating. It wasn't oh, like gotcha, they were just gotcha, like all gotcha. over the place. Uh, here's a paragraph about how Tamaki really has grown up loving Wonder Woman and always wanted to write her. Uh, we've got the first arc. A surprise character returns, Maxwell Lord, asking Diana for help. Just in time for a movie starring Maxwell Lord. I know. <laughs> I know. What do you? Okay, what do we think of the creative team? Love Joe it. Patrick. I love it. I, I do too. You know, I, 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 Janin is just, uh, it's time to start talking about Mikhail Janin as a legend because the guy is fantastic. I will say that Janin is probably the key selling point for me here. Um, I agree. I, I have not been able to hook into a, the ongoing Wonder Woman title for a long time, and I don't know why. It's not that it hasn't been good. I just it just hasn't really latched on to me. But you know I love Mikhail Janin. Every time I've read Steve Orlando's Wonder Woman, and I've read it here and there, like something was happening. I haven't stuck with it the whole time. I really liked it, and I think it's fantastic. But for some reason. It wasn't top of the pile reading for me. I don't know why I didn't keep up with it, but everything that I've read that he wrote was really good. I think it's because we're sexist. That's it. It That's must it. be we're because sexist we're sexist. Uh, but yep. speaking of Steve Orlando, he is moving to Marvel for his first Marvel project. This was just announced today. I saw um, that. It's a it's a little mini event about the book of the Darkhold, which <laughs> I freaking love. <laughs> 
it is. I love the dark hole. I mean, it's like Doctor Doom and magic. It's I I love the dark hole. It's such a stupid idea. Yeah, this is starting in Doctor Doom, like in that in the Doctor Doom. He's opening the dark hole in this next issue. Or oh, is he? Uh, yeah, this yeah. Steve Orlando's thing is called Dark Hold Alpha, so I think it's oh, probably going to be one of those little mini events. Uh, but back to Wonder Woman. Yeah, uh, Mariko Tamaki is a great writer. She is. And, and I think she's perfect for Wonder Woman. I think this should, this should be fantastic. Yeah, looking they're, forward they're to it. Huge boost because of the movie coming up. This is a great team to take it over. I'm excited for that. And also a great jumping on point if yeah. you've been curious about Wonder Woman and just haven't found a good place for it. From the gym from the office desk, actor John Krasinski is a popular choice on the internet to play the Marvel Cinematic Universe eventual Reed Richards in the Fantastic Four, and he seems to be a popular choice with Krasinski himself. Oh, no kidding. What? You mean in John inter- Krasinski wants to be in the most successful film franchise on the planet? Go figure. In an interview promoting the release of A Quiet Place Part 2, which Krasinski is writing and directing, and apparently he is going to show up in some flashback scenes, even though he died in the first one. Don't spoil that shit. It's if you haven't seen it by now, sorry, there are rules. Okay, (laughs) spoiler for a three year old movie. Come on. He was, in fact, a finalist for Steve Rogers slash Captain America before it went to Chris Evans. He said he would love to, but there's been no conversation with Marvel up to this point. Comicbook.com went on to say, and I don't know if I agree with this, but they went on to say that Marvel's been drawing Reed to look like Krasinski recently. I mean, if we're talking about a slightly less old bearded handsome mr fantastic than sure right i don't necessarily see it but joe patrick is jim from the office your best choice for mr fantastic <laughs> you know i wouldn't have minded it i like john krasinski a lot I've i been, do too i've been re-watching the office lately uh and though jim is uh of jim kind of does a lot of shitty stuff on that show he is charming as hell well uh, sure you know, he's beefed up. He's playing Jack Ryan now, you know, like the dude is. And he's fantastic on that show. Dude is that tough. Amazon show is wonderful. But um, this would be a wholly different role. I mean, Reed right. Richards. Reed Richards is, is not like. Functionally I don't need autistic ripped, as far as I understand yeah, the character. <laughs> I don't need ripped up, you know, superhero bod Reed Richards. Not that I think that when I think of John Krasinski. No. But uh, like I would have been totally fine with it until I saw somebody post on Twitter Yeah, 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 Jim is great and everything, but you need a guy that, like, oozes the idea, like, I'll be right down to dinner, honey, but I've got 50 ideas blowing through my mind right now. And then they posted a picture of Taika Waititi looking very manic. I don't, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I I don't, (laughs) given the choice, I would take Krasinski over Waititi. I think. I mean, nobody's just, actually talking about Waititi as as Mr. Fantastic. It was just right. a, fa- a fan thing. And Taika Waititi's a busy guy. He's an Oscar. But I do, uh, I do kind He's, of agree <laughs> that I need somebody. I, it would be nice to have somebody that all the Mr. Fantastics we've had up until now have been like handsome guy, right? And not that Mr. Fantastic can't be handsome, but I need somebody that looks more like a professor first. Jim's a pretty handsome guy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I, Krasinski's a pretty good looking guy. I, I dude. want somebody that looks more like, like, that guy's got a lot going on upstairs. Sure. You know, like his mind's racing a mile a minute. And I don't think I don't think he's a bad choice that. at all. There was there were some other people that were very vocal about John Cho playing him, which I don't have a problem with that either. No, I like John Cho. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, really, the sky's the limit for the fantastic forecasting. I just like 
resist the urge to be like, they're young and edgy. And Dr. Doom's yes. a blogger. Like, and again, stay away from for that shit. Everybody out there listening to this, we are not saying that this is happening. We are not saying that this is reality. No, no, no. This we is are not just talking news. about this is some shit that was said on the internet. And comicbook.com is famous for reporting non stories. So, well, we're just discussing I think you might here. be thinking of a different site, but. Uh, no, they're that bad too. <laughs> like they inter- like this is a legit interview and he did express interest and I say why not? Every time a director mentions anything about the Snyder cut of JL- JLA, comicbook.com reports it. So, yeah, they report yeah, yeah. a lot of non-stories. They're also owned by like some sort of corporate megalith, so <laughs> they got to do what they got to do. <laughs> From the killing zone desk. Oh, Jeff on the killing zone. <laughs> Jeff Johns and Jason Fabok's long-awaited Batman Three Jokers limited series will debut on June seventeenth. This was announced by DC on Monday. All they had to do was shoot Dan DiDio in the back of the head. That's just, and here we are. <laughs> the delays had nothing to do with the Dio, I don't think. Uh-huh. The creative team took all the blame. Jason Fabok said it took me years to draw it. Uh, it is a three-issue series. <laughs> Spinning out of the duo's 2016 to 2017 Dark Side War arc of Justice League, which is no longer in continuity. Nope. And Johns's DC Universe Rebirth number one, which is only sort of still in continuity. <laughs> At least until 5G fixes it all. We don't know. Uh, yeah. It's going to reimagine DC's Clown Prince of Crime and the, mul- and the multiple facets of the hero, Batman, I assume they mean, not the Joker. I guess. Both, both metaphorical and visual as seen in the covers that have been released. This was originally announced in 2018 as part of what was going to be Jeff Johns's own little imprint at DC called Killing Zone. Okay, that name's terrible, right? It is awful. Uh, and yeah. fortunately, no mention of Killing Zone in this announcement. It is going to be a black label title. Of uh, course. Which means nothing that happens in it is going to matter to DC continuity unless they want it to. So it's totally safe. They can do whatever they want here and just say, well, it's a black label book. We were just exploring an idea. Sure. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like that, uh, Jeff Lemire Joker book. It's not, if it's not the Joker, we know it's, it's a version of the Joker. Uh, but this book is going to have the three Jokers are the, uh, classic 1960s Joker, the killing joke, Joker, and I believe it said the original Joker from like the 40s, who was more what? like a gangster type. Um, so they're going to try to reconcile all these different versions, I guess. So let me ask you this. Do you care at all at this point? I mean, I'm happy to see Jeff Johns writing comics. I'm happy to see this project finally come to light. I was more excited when it was definitely part of DC continuity. Yeah, I mean, like Jeff when Jones, he sat on the Mobius happy- chair and he, and he said, "Tell me who the Joker is," and the Mobius chair said, "There are three Jokers." When you are happy to see Jeff Johns writing comics, that's great. So am I. Jeff Johns wrote this three years ago. Yeah, it's true. Uh, you know what you- I mean? Like, and I'm not saying like I, I, it's going to be garbage. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying I find it very hard to care about this at this point. I mean, the- and moving into Black Label where. It, at that point, it has nothing to do with anything until such time DC decides that it has something to do with right. anything makes it even harder for me to care. I mean, the bloom is definitely off the rose at this point, but I'm still interested in checking it out. Uh, I, and I'm kind of done bagging on Black Label for quote unquote not counting. I mean, I know that I say that, but 
I would not be surprised if anything that happens in Strange Adventures eventually gets mentioned in a mainstream DC book. You know what I mean? I don't think it will. I think they it, want not Black in this, Label. Not in the same way that like nothing from a basket full of heads is going to get referenced in the DC. No, no, of course not. But I think Black Label is a place where they can tell these stories, like like we were saying last week, that they can get edgy, they can get weird, and they can do stuff and explore ideas that they normally couldn't do in the regular DCU. And that is fine. Yes. I don't have any problem with that. That's totally fine. But moving this to Black Label says to me, it's gone. It doesn't count. It doesn't matter. This is just a thought experiment at this point. We'll see. When it I, was supposed to count. It was supposed to be a thing. Yeah, you're right. It was supposed to count, and Doomsday Clock was supposed to be over a year ago. So not like, sour you a little bit? Well, I mean, yes and no, but it's not like I'm not going to still want to read it. You know what I mean? Like... I'm not going to I mean, look it. at it when I it comes out it. and go, no way. You had your chance, Johns. You no, know? I'm, I'm not saying that either. I'm just saying, like, we both agree that something weird happened with Jeff Johns in the last two years where he all but disappeared from DC continuity. And this was supposed uh, to be a thing he has that was been working. He has been working tirelessly on the TV stuff. And Shazam. And, well, yeah, and that one title that's constantly late, yeah. Right. Um, but and that's fine, and I get that. And, but if that, this is just odd, and putting it out now almost seems like an afterthought to me. If it's good, it's good. We'll see. I but mean, they have to put it out now. They've been paying Jason Fabok to draw it since 2018. Exactly. And people ultimately keep asking about I just it. Don't, I just don't think it means anything anymore. Maybe I it'll think, be great. I think time will tell because Black Label, while yes, they can do out of continuity stuff, they can do Vertigo esque stuff. They can do Elseworlds type stuff. They can also do continuity adjacent stuff, which means if it fits, it fits. Have we seen that yet? Have we seen anything that has been quote unquote continuity adjacent? I don't think we have. I don't know that there has yet been a black label book that is close to the current status quo. I'm going to say there has not. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. So that would be a new I mean, Strange thing. Adventures, I guess, would be the first to me. We don't know, we don't though. Have, there was nothing yeah, about... We don't, we don't know yet. There was nothing about Strange Adventures, number one, that screamed to me that it's out of continuity. I have a feeling we're going to end Other than there, the fact we that it had a Black Label week. logo on it. Yeah. But I think that Black Label logo should be your first clue. This is not mainstream DCU. It just isn't. We'll see. We're doing something different here. We'll see. We will see. That is your nerd news for the week, but I'm sure we missed plenty of other stories while selling punchline first appearances from three different DC titles online. <laughs> so hit us up on the THN Forum's big news section, or better yet, tune in to Cover to Cover. We do it live every Saturday where we broadcast on our Facebook page from 11 to noon Central Standard Time. It's more fun than four jokers, and you control the content. This week, we're talking about famous kitty cats. And of course, all this news and more. Call us live on the Ziggurat Hotline, 402-819-4894, or click the Call Now button on our Facebook page. If you can't be there live, you can leave us a message, or you can send us an MP3 to twittednerd at gmail.com. The, uh, the DC Back Matter, it was either this week or last week. It must have been last week. Had an article with um, James Tinian the Four where he explained the convoluted origin yeah. of the he first totally appearance of too. Punchline, where he's like, he totally well, owned it. 
we knew it was slated for 89 or whatever issue it was, 92. Uh, 89. It was it was it was originally slated for 92, mm-hmm. but then they retroactively inserted her into 89. <laughs> To make up for the fact that she appeared in Hell Arisen number three. It's and they didn't so, want that first appearance so there. And stupid. He he owned it. He has yeah. he has like a, a newsletter called like Tiny Onion or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Which I think means his name is probably pronounced like Tinyon or something. But regardless. Sure. He said, I owned it. I fucked it up. This is hundred percent. Yeah, my fault. they wanted her be first mad appearance at anyone. to be be mad at me. <laughs> they wanted her first appearance to be in Batman, not this yeah. shitty event. It's so funny. It's spotlight review time in the Ziggurat, and this week we chose two de-aged child heroes to act as our champions and battle it out to see who went first. Man, it looks like your teen Tony mopped up the floor with my baby Magneto. Why would you even choose baby Look, Magneto? Look, he's still he Magneto. He doesn't have powers until he's a teen. That's how it works. (laughs) I guess you're up first. My review this week is of Cable, number one, from Marvel, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Phil Noto. It is 32 pages. It costs $4.99 because it's special. Here's your solicit. Cable was a grizzled old veteran of the wars to save the future. And he will be again. But for now, he's a young mutant. Living in paradise, leading a life of adventure, Nathan Summers, son of the two most powerful mutants on Krakoa, has a destiny, leading the youth of mutant kind in rebellion, dot, dot, dot. So why not start now? The flood of X-Books continues with Kid Cable getting his own title, and I have to say, I did not see this one coming. Not the comic. Of course they gave Cable another series. This X-Money isn't going to print itself, people. I had no clue what Jerry Duggan was going to do here. Jerry Duggan has grown on me, and while I didn't love his Infinity Wars crossover, his Marauder's X title has been great, and he seems to have a very solid handle on the new X status quo. Phil Noto is just a legend. I love his art, and you should too, but he's also the kind of artist that doesn't stick around long. We'll see, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's off the book after this first story arc. Noto's art is very solid, as usual here. I did feel like he tried to go a little more animated than usual. Like he softened his line a bit to give the comic the youthful energy Duggan was going for in his script, maybe. It looks great, don't get me wrong. And there's a huge contrast in his style when we get to the big reveal in the end. I want to interject real quick before I forget my point. Uh, I did notice what you were talking about the other day, uh, but... I didn't notice it at the beginning of the issue, and then obviously yeah. not at the end either, uh, where right it shifted middle, styles. It got a little weird. It, right? it like it, it. It's like it softened. It, it, it's like you know the black outline that a lot of artists draw with, right? Dropped out completely in yes. the scene where they meet Cyclops in the cave, and it almost looked like an animation cell. Yes, and right? I did. I did notice that. Uh, but in the earlier scenes, it just looked like classic Phil Noto to me. Yeah, it just looked like Phil Noto to me. And the end, definitely Phil Noto. And, no but the end also was more grizzled. It was less colorful. It was hard definitely. black lines. But still, I mean, without a doubt. So he Phil changed Noto it up for sure from scene to scene, I think. The story here starts with Kid Cable fighting Wolverine and some kind of Krakoan blood sport. And they finally answered my question of where is the Silver Samurai? No spoilers here, but it was kind of a weird fight 
to say the least. <laughs> from there, we get a cocky kid Cable helping find a lost mutant and even removing a sword from a giant lion's paw and a callback to the weird issue of X-Men 4 where Krakoa slammed into another island full of monsters and then issue 5 came and Hickman was done with yeah, that. Yeah, Krakoa <laughs> ate it and now it's one big island. <laughs> Up to this point, I was wondering if we needed these kind of Kid Cable adventures monthly. It's not poorly written. Kid Cable's kind of a cocky jerk at times, but he's not annoying. The whole kid with a gun thing kind of sends a tone-deaf message these days, but I suppose it's a laser gun and he's not killing anyone with it. Duggan's script takes a huge twist and incorporates some characters I'm not crazy about. I'll talk about that more on cover to cover, no spoilers here, but it's obviously set up for the coming Ten of Swords crossover. Then the script takes another turn and gave me what I was hoping for. Again, no spoilers, but you can probably guess who shows up on the last page. Strife. Kid Strife. Kid Strife. Yes. <laughs> Cable number one was fine. I liked it more than I thought I would, and Duggan even managed to sneak in a setup for Cable's role in the next big X crossover, but he's gonna have to give me more to make me really like Kid Cable. The book looked good, and it did get to something interesting by the last page, but right now, I'm only giving it a skim it. All right, so just to get it off the out of out of the way, I am also giving this book a skim it. But we argued about this uh, point about the characters that you don't like at length. And we'll talk. We'll talk about it on Saturday. Uh, and let's, get, let's get rid of your time. To, time I get it. But my point is that there's no reason for Marvel not to use characters they don't own. Let's not even go into it now. We'll talk about that on Saturday. Uh, all right. Well, my point is you're being a big crybaby about it. Uh, but I'm not saying it ruined the story or anything. It's just yeah, like yeah. there's so many other ways you could have done this. Sure. Why? Yeah. Okay. Where else is he going to get a sword smart guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, pull it out of a lion's paw. <laughs> but apparently it got stuck in there a million years ago. <laughs> right. And the lion is a million years old, it's I guess. An old it's been limping lion. around. It's just a really <laughs> old lion. Uh, <laughs> I like for me, uh, like I loved the art. I did notice that Phil Noto switched up his style uh, from scene to scene, but it felt intentional to me and it made me appreciate it more. Where it felt off to me was Cable's personality. Yeah. I understand he's a teen. I understand that most ex-teens have that, you know, cocky, happy-go-lucky, party time, this is awesome attitude or whatever. That was not Kid Cable. If you go back and read his introduction in Extermination uh, by Ed Brisson, Kid Cable was militant. His whole well, even, thing was like... Even if you go back to the Ascani Sun stuff, yeah, like the younger yeah. Cable was quiet, militant, yeah. you know, like definitely removed, you know, like grew up. But then again, maybe this is not that character. I mean, we don't well, know. Well, but this is... This is this is definitely the extermination kid cable who was so dedicated to his mission that he committed future suicide <laughs> when he thought that he failed but or that he abandoned it. It's a time travel story and I'm not defending anything. All I'm saying is no, maybe it's not <laughs> you it know is, I mean? man, like this. There's a clear line from the end of extermination to every other kid cable appearance since then. I just don't know that anything that you're, happens. You're not going to, there's line. no way that this is a different version of a different version of cable. 
Well, it sure seems like one to me. His personality seemed off, and that's why I gave it a skim. And I was like, this isn't this doesn't read like the character that I read in the last thing I saw him in. But it will. It also does read like the character that we have seen in the other X books of late. Yeah, and that's a problem with those books too, I suppose. It's Maybe. just that those books weren't like <laughs> devoted to him. I'm just yeah, and this is like we like can go when, back and forth when he showed up on this. When he when showed it comes up in to this time travel shit with this character, we just. We don't know what we're dealing yeah, with. Yeah, but I don't think they're going to pull that kind of bait and switch. Uh, like when he showed up in X-Men number one uh, and he's just like, hey, dads, you know, <laughs> living on the moon with Cyclops and Wolverine. Right. And the, like, that did not feel right to me for that character. But you also had Vulcan showing up. And yeah, well, right. And that shit's not too. been explained either. We also and had so, Cyclops acting super weird. I, so, I think that they're playing fast and loose with personalities, and maybe yes. that will be explained. Maybe it won't. Maybe it's just a lazy writer's trick. I think say, there's hey, something going on. I like to think that there's something going on. Like maybe, so many- maybe Professor X is casting a constant like wave of good vibes over the island, and everybody's well, real chill about Professor it. X, even Professor X has been that weird. Yeah. We, we, I don't know. We've constantly said this, so I just don't know. Sure. Uh, I'm giving it a skim it. I liked the art. I, I personally am interested in the subplot with where the sword came from, and I really smiled at the last page. I mean, they did give us an excuse to have an enchanted sword, didn't they? They sure did. <laughs> Joe Patrick, batter up. All right. I'm reviewing Decorum, number one from Image Comics, written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Mike Huddleston. Letters by Russ Wooten, design by Sasha E. Head, or Heed, I don't know. It's 56 pages for $4.99. Learn a lesson, Marvel. <laughs> Here's your solicit. There are many assassins in the known universe. This is the story of the most well-mannered one. Quote, manners are a sensitive awareness of the feelings of others. If you have that awareness, you have good manners, no matter what knife you use. End quote. Jonathan Hickman's first new creator-owned project since redefining Marvel's X-Men line is here, and he's brought artistic powerhouse Mike Huddleston along with him. The issue opens with Hickman's usual MO of sprawling title pages. Seriously, like four title pages. (laughs) (laughs) And then like a scrawl of text that describes the world that the story inhabits. Artists have got to love him, though, because he's like, no, 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 don't worry. You're like... Well, I'm, I got some stuff I got to take care of. And so yeah, you're only drawing like 20 pages. pages. <laughs> <laughs> the narrative itself is told in three distinct chapters, beginning with a near silent tale of a world being plundered by conquerors searching for a mysterious artifact. The usual maps and graphs are here as expected, and they do a great job building the world and its history. Chapter two introduces us to Neha or Neha. I don't know. A courier that finds herself in over her head. The issue then moves in a more linear fashion to chapter three, where we meet the well-mannered assassin from the solicit. Through it all, Hickman's excellent dialogue creates compelling personalities for every character involved, from the main players to the shady alien middleman and the technicolor dreamcoat gangster and the weird monolithic black alien conquistadors that slice people's faces off. I loved him. It's so rad. Uh, <clears throat> Mike Huddleston has been drawing comics professionally since the mid-90s, but it seems like he's a bit of an enigma to most comic fans. I just had a conversation with friend of the show, James Kaplan, today, 
And this was like only the f- this was the first thing he'd ever seen his name on. Mike Huddleston is not a big name. If you look back, he doesn't at like, do huge projects. He doesn't. He only worked on a bunch of like smaller, critically acclaimed, like creators' creations. You know yeah. what I mean? I first encountered him on the Oni Press series, The Coffin, written by Phil Hester. I've talked about it on the show a ton of times. Uh, he also drew the spiritual sequel to, uh, to Coffin called Deep Sleeper. His most high-profile gig to date is arguably his short run on DC's Harley Quinn series in 2003, back when she was still dressing like the animated series. Yeah. But really, like you said, he's been honing his craft for almost 25 years on dozens of sci-fi and horror projects, low-key stuff. Joe Casey's Butcher Baker the Righteous Maker, do you remember that? So good. I loved it. Um he did a book called Nemovore for Vertigo that was freaking yeah. creepy. Also amazing. Uh, and like the longest stretch of work I saw from him, and probably the most recent, uh, he drew every issue of the Dark Horse Comics adaptations of The Strain written by David Lapham. Yep. The only reason I read it. His current style almost defies description as it changes from page to page throughout the issue, sometimes within the same panel. He moves from lush, fully painted panels to sparse black ink renderings to an almost charcoal pencil look. His fluid colors transform from black and white to zipatone to monochrome to unbelievably saturated. The most breathtaking page for me in this book was the one where the natives witnessed their conquerors descending from the sky in vibrantly painted flying pirate ships. Yeah. And I didn't even notice it at first. I thought it was just like a Hickman thing, but there, uh, there's a huge black sail with a perfectly round O or sphere on top of an X. I'm like, okay, I don't know what that means. And then I looked at it again and I'm like, oh shit, it's the skull and crossbones. It's the futuristic oh. alien skull and crossbones. I didn't even pick up on that. I know. And then I was just like, that is genius. <laughs> Russ Wooten's letters and Sasha Head's designs bond seamlessly with the art and script with even a diagram of a deconstructed bowl of ramen being used to propel the story forward. Like the best opening chapters of a Jonathan Hickman project, Decorum Number 1 introduces a fascinating universe full of characters and concepts that I can't wait to discover, and Mike Huddleston's phenomenal art brings it all together. I'm giving this a huge buy it. This is probably the best debut issue I've read in some time. This was exceptionally cool, and I love it when two complete weirdos can get together and match their weird styles to make it work into this even bigger, weirder thing. Sometimes that's very difficult. I feel like Hickman is very good at finding artists to do that with him. And you know that he handpicked Huddleston for this and came to him and said, "Yeah, this is going to get wacky. Yeah, I'm bringing you along for the ride. Let's do this. The only thing that worries me is I think Jonathan Hickman is a very busy guy right now, and I think Mike Huddleston is slow. So I don't know if we're going to see a bunch of monthly issues of decorum. I hope we do. Well, I, I mean, sincerely hope we do. How, what evidence fall. do you have that Mike Heddleston is slow? I think one of the reasons that he doesn't work more is because he's slow. 
I think he had a short run on that Harley Quinn, but he had that stuff in the can for six months, so it was already done, and his story was finished. Well, you're just making he, this stuff up. I'm not. If you look at his style, there's no way that this guy is cranking this stuff out. Like, but his style, I mean, I'm, my point is that his style has changed from project to project for I agree. 25 I agree. years. Like, I if you look think- at that, if you look at that Harley Quinn stuff, it is very standard. Sure. Comic book art. I just think in looking what this guy does, there's no way it doesn't take time. I'm not saying that is a fault. Oh, I'm yeah. I mean, it's it, maybe it's plan- maybe it's planned to come out on a certain schedule. Could be. I just hope this doesn't suffer from something like the uh, Black Monday murder suffered from, where it took forever to yeah, finally get uh, that story Yeah, the out. dead and the dying or the living and the dead. What was that other book that they launched and number two came I out like a year later? I want to say it was a, it, it was like the dead and the dying or something. The dead and the dying, remember. yeah, something like that. It, it took so long to come out that I can't remember, and I just hope right. this doesn't fall prey to that. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, no, I hear you. Very impressive first issue, and I love the Hickman can flex his muscles outside of the X-Men universe and still do something like this. Can't wait for more. I'm giving it a buy as well. So that is a double skim it for Cable number one and a double buy it for Decorum number one. Allegedly, we'll post our written reviews over at TwoEditNerd.com so you can argue that kids should have guns to protect themselves in today's America. (laughs) But we need to know what you nerds thought of these comics too, so call this weekend on THN Cover to Cover at its new regular time, 11 a.m. to noon, Central Standard Time. Actually, Central Daylight Time, because Daylight Savings Time started. I don't... Is that... It becomes CDT? Is that right? CDT, baby. It's time to review some more of this week's comics, but before we do, we're going to wet our whistles with a cocktail from the official THN bartender, Mr. Justin Fletcher, who put together the cocktail of the week. It is Kid Cable inspired, so it's a boozy drink that even a child could enjoy. Oh man, I'm sorry I'm not there. (laughs) Justin, what are we sipping on this week? All right, Manny, so this is uh, Cable Juice Box. It is a sidecar variation. The sidecar is a cognac drink with triple sec or Grand Mar, um, along with lemon juice on a shake. Um, the one I'm making this variation, this juice box, is actually going to be made with brandy, and it's going to be apple brandy. So we have 100 proof bottle and bond layers apple brandy. We have seven and a half year layered uh, apple brandy. We also have an apple shrub I made in-house, and then just a little bit of simple syrup. So we're going to go one ounce of bottled and bond, one ounce of seven and a half, a half, a half ounce of my shrub, a quarter ounce of sugar. We'll put that in a shaker, throw ice on it, shake it up, throw it into a coupe or some kind of similar glass, and you are good to go. That is it. Enjoy, nurse. The THN Cocktail of the Week is brought to you by O'Courant on the Benson Strip in Omaha, Nebraska, where Justin manages their bar program. And we've mentioned it a couple times now, but Chef Ben Maids was just announced as a James Beard nominee for 2020. Get up there and check out their brunch. It is excellent. Now, with Drink in Hand, join us as we review eight more of this Wednesday's new comics during the ludicrous speed round. Ludicrous speed! Go! Submariner, Marvel's Snapshot, number one from Marvel. What the hell? <laughs> I mean, it should have been called Marvel's Snapshot, colon, Submariner. Right. I mean, seriously, you guys. 
After our confusion about all of these Marvel's projects a couple weeks ago, I finally figured out what these snapshot specials are. They're a series of stories about Marvel's iconic heroes through the ages, told from the point of view of ordinary people, very similar to how the original Marvel's was told from the perspective of Phil Sheridan. Okay, that's fair, but that first Marvel thing they did totally was different. not. That was not totally related. different. To unrelated. Good Lord. Oh, I'm we so also confused. forgot to mention Marvel X, which is an Earth X spinoff <laughs> prequel. <laughs> Series curator Kurt Busiek has recruited legendary creators Alan Brennert and Jerry Ordway for this tale of Namor the Submariner struggling with the horrors of the Holocaust as seen through the eyes of his girlfriend, Betty Dean. He had a girlfriend named Betty Dean? Yeah, man, in the 40s. Yeah, okay. 40s and 50s. I did not know. All right. The tone of the story is all over the place as the real horrors of war and PTSD clash with a ridiculous fight with a man in a giant robot shark suit. <laughs> But Ordway's outstanding art with a nice retro feel just really hit home for me. The first Marvel snapshot is a bit of a mixed bag, but I like the idea. I look forward to more future issues, giving it a skim it. Stealth number one from Image slash Skybound. Mike Costa writes this new series created by Robert Kirkman and Mark Silvestri about a young reporter in Detroit living with his father who's showing signs of dementia. Nate Bellagarde is great on art here, giving the story a very real-world, almost indie slice-of-life look, but he can also instantly switch into superhero mode. The story was just brutal and takes a very hard look at life in Detroit and the experience of living with a loved one suffering from dementia. Costa's story was excellent and really caught me off guard. I'm not sure if I've ever read a superhero book with this kind of angle, and it really hit me in the last couple of pages. I'm giving this a massive buy it. It was not what I thought it was going to be at all. Uh, so if I recall, Stealth was one of those pilot season one shots from years ago. I don't know. That could be true. Where they did a bunch of like tryout one shots to see which ones would get promoted to ongoings. Hardcore was another yeah. one. Uh, and uh, yeah, so what a time to finally bring Stealth back. Man. But it does look great, and I love Mike Costa and Nate Bellagarde. Did you read this? I haven't read it yet, but I love the creative team. It was fucking brutal. <laughs> I did see some very violent pages, yes. Uh, no, but I mean, like, I, I no spoilers. You just need to read yeah, it. Yeah, I'll read it. The Blackland, number one, from Older Threat. Hey, we know that guy. We do. Our buddy Jim Kettner is back with an all-new series steeped in high science fantasy concepts. It's a sword and sorcery murder mystery set in the heart of a deadly canyon of monsters and magic. Ket's art blows me away, even more with each new project. He's using a more ethereal style here, complemented by a beautiful palette of rust colors and turquoise. The Black Land number one, it's a strong first issue. It's got a great hook. Get to ketnerd.com right now and buy it. North Bend number one from Scout. In the near future, the U.S. is at war with Russia, and the CIA is launching a plan to test a drug on the criminal U.S. populace that is basically a form of mind control. Ryan Ellsworth writes a very creepy and very realistic script that any conspiracy fan will love. Rob Terry's thin art style gives the story a super creepy feel and works very well when drawing both emotionless bureaucrats and angry demonstrators. North Bend is well written enough 
and based on a reality very similar to our own to make it mildly terrifying and a very solid feel-bad comic. I'm giving it a buy it. Sweetheart, number one from Action Lab, Danger Zone. Sweetheart takes place in a world where a race of monsters chooses a single target, hunting them slowly over years or decades, and Ugh. how people cope when they or their loved ones are chosen. Uh, it's like the world knows about it. There are yeah. They have like ways to protect themselves. Like what happens if you get chosen? Uh, I love the concept. I love the story by Dylan Gilbertson. Uh, it had plenty of unexpected twists and thrills. The art by Francesco Iaquinta and colorist Marco Pagnata is creepy and atmospheric, though Iaquinta's line work has some serious anatomical and storytelling issues. Hey. Overall, his monsters are great, though. Overall, Sweetheart number one was a creepy good time. I'm giving it a strong skim it. Uh, so not mercy. Star Wars Bounty Hunters number one from Marvel. Ethan Sachs writes this predictably tough and edgy book with a lot of introductions in the dialogue, like sloppy work, Nakano Lash, our services don't include listening to whining Camus, and good job to Angor, I'll take it from here. That's in three consecutive panels, by the way. <laughs> Paolo Villanelli is solid on art with a loose and fast style that reminds me of legends like Butch Geis and Steve Epting. There was plenty of action. So much so that I guess I understand why everyone had to keep saying their own names. But not a lot of story here. Plenty of Bosk, Valance, and Boba Fett being badasses and delivering badass lines. And of course, a few nods to the time between Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back where this takes place. But nothing that's really got me wanting more. I'm giving it a skimming. The Batman's Grave, number six from DC. War Spoiler, he died. <laughs> They put him in the grave. Oh, man. Warren Ellis and Brian Hitch's latest collabo is just past the halfway mark with this issue, and it has been a complete blast to read, as you can imagine. Ellis's Batman is like the perfect blend of several incarnations of the Dark Knight, and I can't tell you how happy it makes me to see him putting Batman's detective skills front and center, which isn't something we see enough of these days. Hitch's art did have a, a few pretty wonky moments in this issue, but... It's Brian Hitch, man. He's still great overall. If you've been sleeping on the Batman's grave, I definitely recommend you catch up or pick up the inevitable hardcover. I'm giving it a buy it. I'm going to say it. This is the best Batman book on the stands right now. Uh, it is. I agree. Yes. I don't even think it was an argument. No, I agree. Judge Dredd, 100-page giant from IDW. While I don't understand the IDW 2000 AD connection, I don't care because every time IDW puts out a Judge Dredd book, it's great. This 100-page giant sees work from Ulysses Farinas, Eric Fritas, who worked on the last few Judge Dredd IDW miniseries, Paul Jenkins, and Paul Easton. Now, this 100-page giant reprints the first issues of said last four Dredd miniseries. So, if you didn't check them out, it's a great way to do so. If you read them all like I did, well, you might want your money back because IDW wasn't real clear on the fact that this was a reprint book. Let me be clear here. I liked all the stories that are reprinted from the miniseries, but I did not know this was a reprint because they did not expressly tell you that. <laughs> that is the only reason I'm giving it a skim. If you haven't read it, it's new to you. I suppose. 
Kakoom! Manager looting for a speed round and Kakoom! Is the sound of the elder of an alien orgy tribe using his enormous dingus to defeat a warlord and save his planet. I am not making this up. Swings it like a big this old club. Seen in the pages of Money Shot number five. By the way, Phil Hester tweeted at Tim Seeley about this and said, "You know, it took me a couple pages before I realized I was reading a giant dick fight." <laughs> <laughs> This onomatopoeia of the week was submitted by Amy from North Dakota via email because she's a pervert. But that's okay, Amy. We like you just the way you are. If you want to submit an onomatopoeia of the week, you can post it to any of our social media accounts or, like Amy did, send an email to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. And remember, stop by Ocaron, try the THN cocktail of the week. Word on the street is even little kids like it. It's time to head up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum where we're settling in for our self-quarantine and Matt has assured me we have enough THC and horror movies to last the next two weeks. You're going to be fine. Don't worry. What about toilet paper, Matt? Joe, we have a bidet. Uh, we're not cavemen. Yeah. Come on. We're living the high life. <laughs> we spray our buttholes clean. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, before we get too lifted, why don't you tell these nerds about your pick for next week? Next week, I am excited for Artemis and the Assassin, number one. This is from Aftershock. It's written by Stephanie Phillips with art by Megan Hetrick. It is 32 pages for $4.99. Here's your solicit. What happens when a time-traveling assassin and a spy from 1944 try to kill each other? For a price, a top-secret assassination organization will travel through time and interfere with watershed moments. Trained as the agency's top assassin, Maya is sent to kill Virginia Hall the deadliest spy of WWII. Charged with carrying important plans about the invasion of Normandy to the Allied troops, Virginia's death would have a cataclysmic effect on WWII as we know it. Written by Stephanie Phillips, who also wrote The Butcher of Paris and Descendant, two books that I reviewed and gave buy-its to. She is very good. With art by Megan Hetrick and Francesca Fantini. Colors by Lauren Affey and letters by Troy Petrie. Artemis and the Assassin is a pulpy adventure story about the cost of changing history. I very much enjoy the writing of Stephanie Phillips. The preview art by Megan Hetrick looks really good, and this just sounds like fun. Yeah, I'll definitely read it. There you go. What's your pick for next week, Joe? Next week, I am excited for Outlawed, number one, from Marvel Comics, written by Eve L. Ewing, with art by Kim Yacinto. It's, again... Isn't it Jacinto? It's gotta be Jacinto. I said Yacinto. I think it's Jacinto. I say it that way because the actor who plays Jason Mendoza on The Good Place is named Manny Yacinto. Oh. Maybe. So, there you go. Okay. Once again, Marvel... Maybe... They're married. Maybe they are brother and sister. Maybe they're father <laughs> Maybe. and daughter. I don't Maybe know. Maybe she's his mom. Maybe Kim <laughs> is a guy because there are guys named Kim. It's 32 pages for $4.99. What the fuck, Marvel? It's special. I guess. Exploding from the pages of incoming in the wake of a devastating tragedy, the United States passes a law that will shake the Marvel Universe to its core. The world has had enough of teen heroes. The crackdown has begun, and the lives of Marvel's next generation will never be the same again. Eve L. Ewing and Kim Jayacinto launch a new era in this game-changing event one-shot. 
Why is it labeled number one? That will send shockwaves across the Marvel Universe. You won't want to miss this one. We talked about this when it was announced. Uh, I kind of like the idea of a sort of a, a, a Civil War-esque crackdown on teen heroes because, of course, it's very irresponsible for adults to let them run around fighting crime. Extremely so. Uh, so I'm curious to see what Marvel does with it. I like Eve Ewing. I love Kim Yacinto. I like the current crop of Marvel teen characters. So Yeah, I, I like all these characters. I'm into it. And I think this is an interesting thing to do with them, at least. I don't know. While it wasn't bad, the Champions book was actually kind of fun. Yeah. It also was kind of spinning its wheels with these characters. So this seems like maybe something that can interject a little life into them, give them something interesting to do, and maybe even spin some interesting directions out of it. Yeah, the the Champions book definitely expanded the roster a little too far with a bunch of like new teen heroes that nobody knew about. And it was too much. They had this like kick-ass like base they were working out of and stuff. Yeah. Like they're just kids. And this, like, on, this new uh, Champions book that's spinning out of Outlawed is going to be much more focused on Miles... Kamala Khan and the young Nova. So I'm looking forward Good. to that too. The teaching trade of the week goes to dragon hoops, the hardcover from first second. It's written and drawn by Gene Loing Yang. It is 448 pages for 24 99 for a hardcover. How do you make that 32 pages for 499 shit work with this kind of math? Huh? Man, come on. Here's your solicit in his latest graphic novel, Gene Luing Yang, turns a spotlight on his life, his family, and the high schooler he teaches. Gene doesn't get sports. But at Bishop O'Dowd High School, it's all anyone can talk about. The men's varsity basketball team, the Dragons, is having a phenomenal season that's been decades in the making. Once Gene gets to know these young all-stars, he realizes that their story is just as thrilling as anything he's seen on a comic page. What he doesn't know yet is that this season is not only going to change the dragon's lives, but his own life as well. So I got an advanced review copy of this book from first second. That you did I, not share with me. Well, because I had to read it myself first, but I'll bring it over on Saturday. Just, just saying. I'll you know. bring it over on Saturday. Uh, <laughs> it's excellent. It's phenomenal. He's an, he is a phenomenal creator. Gene Luing Yang is one of those guys, like shortlist guys, no matter what they put out, just go pick it up. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah. It, he does such a good job telling the story of these kids and how his life changes as uh, he interacts with them and the coach of the school. It's a really great read. We're going to, I'm going to just say right now, we will review this in the coming months in uh, Take a Look, It's in a Book, as soon as Matt's finished with it. Okay, then. It's fantastic. These are just a few of the comics hitting the shelves at your local comic shop next Wednesday, March 18th. So be sure to add them to your pull files. Let us know what you are reading over the THN forums. Who the hell is that guy? We've got just over a month until the Black Widow film hits theaters. Less than that until the new Black Widow number one hits shelves. And we got a new Black Widow trailer this week. Holy so crap. peeps be asking, who dis Red Guardian? We heard you, but more importantly, the official THN historian is here to tell you all about him in the latest edition of Jason Sachs' segment, Who the Hell is This Guy? Colon, Red Guardian Edition, Jason 
the show is yours, sir. Hi, I'm Jason Sachs, host of the Classic Comics Cavalcade podcast and author of the American Comic Book Chronicles 1990s. Welcome to Who the Fuck is This Guy? This time out, I'm here to talk about the Red Guardian. Another one of Marvel's Z-list characters. Well, in this case, it, maybe it's wrong to talk about the Red Guardian in the singular because there have been so many Red Guardians throughout Marvel history. As you might guess from the name, at least if you're a person of a certain age, the original Red Guardian was a Soviet Russian stooge. Debuting in Avengers 43, 1966, Alexei Shostakov was, as a caption that issue informs us, the People's Republic's counterpart to the accursed Captain America. He is now our foremost defender, the invincible Red Guardian. Clad in a Red Guard costume which echoes Cap's, Alexei even had the belt buckle which he could use as a weapon, much like Cap's shield. He also harbors a very interesting secret. He was the husband of the Black Widow. Yeah, Natasha Romanoff herself. Before the heroine defected to the USA, fell in love with Hawkeye and all that good stuff. Sadly, Alexei was killed in the subsequent issue, and though his memory would haunt Natasha for many years, the original Red Guardian passed into oblivion. Thankfully, the costume was brought back about 10 years later, this time worn by Soviet brain surgeon Dr. Tanya Belinsky. She becomes involved with the Defenders in Defenders 35, 1977, right at the midpoint of what literally may be my favorite comic book story of all time. No exaggeration. If you haven't read the Headman saga in the Defenders, you're missing out on the greatest comics freaking ever. Tanya was tough and smart with no real connection to the original Guardian, at least that we knew of, but with a strong joy about hanging out with Marvel's most notorious non-team during their most astonishing era under the brilliant pen of writer Steve Gerber. After Gerber left the book, Tanya's life slid as the book's quality also slid. Through a series of very strange events, she found herself back in Russia at a Chernobyl-style event in which she ended up fighting a mutated giant space amoeba, don't ask, and was written out when she fell under the thrall of the mysterious and all-powerful presence, who Keith Giffen drew like a kind of space testicle. Eventually, she and the Defenders and her boyfriend, yeah, the Presence, because it was the 70s, defeat the Amoeba, and she stays behind in Siberia to live her life of bliss, I guess, with the Cosmic Testicle Dude. It was a sad ending for a heroine who once had so much promise. She returned years later in stories that are so forgettable, I can't remember them, even though I read them this week. The next Red Guardian appeared in an appropriate book, Mark Grunewald's Captain America in the 1980s. The storyline beginning in Captain America 352, we met Yosef Petkus, who was hired to wear the costume and preventing the Soviet super soldiers from defecting to America. Defection was a thing people did back in the day. Um, we don't really hear about that much anymore. We don't really either find out much about Yosef in that issue, and he never appears again as far as I know, which is at least a better fate then the next Red Guardian, who dies literally on the first few pages of Ed Brubaker's celebrated run on Captain America in 2004. This one, General Alexander Lukin, tries to arrest the Red Skull after Boris Yeltsin orders him to. But I already told you how that one turned out. Not well. And then there's one more Red Guardian, one more bland and blah hero, who appeared in the Little Red and even worse remembered Dark Star and the Winter Guard. 2009. 
Smart a jerk, but an effective leader of his Russian buddies, and frankly, I'm getting bored just talking about him. So the question remains, who the hell was the Red Guardian? One, two, three, four, five, six different people? All of whom were kind of nobodies. Sorry, Russia. Excelsior! Oh. That is it for THN564. Next time on the show, we'll either be celebrating or barfing up the remnants of our bloodshot experience. If people are still allowed to go to movie theaters, that is. Joe! It's a, it's a roll of the dice, man. I mean, really? I think the NBA just canceled the rest of their season. Some, it's crazy. Ask these nerds a new question of the week before the CDC tells us that we can't do that either. This week's question was submitted by Lord Stephen Fino, the THN Master of Coin, via the THN forums. I just adopted a cat who I have named Lady Macbeth. So before I get murdered in my sleep so that she can usurp my title as Master of Coin, who is your favorite fictional cat? Now, Jason Sachs uh, pointed out to me on the Facebook fan page that about four months ago, we did favorite fictional animal. It's true. But we're narrowing it down to cats. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe we should be a little more careful. When we I told him time was a flat circle. Don't worry about it. <laughs> All right. If you're new to the show and you'd rather go to a huge event and lick strangers' faces than hear any more, I assure you, it's only because you haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital longbox archive at TwoHeadedNerd.com. And if you are self-quarantining, it's a great way to kill time. But hosting that many episodes, it ain't cheap. We want to thank donors like Chase Van Bolt creator, Darren Neely. An all-around sweetheart. Darren Neely. I haven't thought about that guy for a while. What a guy. Yeah, we met him at O Comic Con, but we haven't, uh, yeah. I don't think we've gotten to catch up with him the last couple times. No, we met, we kissed, you know? Yeah, you know. And then we were, after that, we, our ships sailed the other direction. It was too bad. Like past, two ships passing in the night. Yes. Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to Brian Domingos, JD Got a Catch, the aforementioned Amy and D, and everyone else that responded to my recent call for onomatopoeias for the show. Seriously, I got more suggestions this week than I've gotten in months. Word to you, listeners. It's folks like you that keep me from having to do too much work. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might violate your self-quarantine and lick your face. This is the Two-Headed Nerd, signing off. <laughs>